I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine scripture asking questions of life versus death, rather than questions of good versus evil. For the past two months, we've been in the story of Jacob. And Jacob as a character has the largest presence in the book of Genesis, as he is present for nearly half the book. And for two months, we've watched Jacob grow as a person from a conniving, cheating, deceiving twerp into a man who is worthy of the name Israel. And Jacob has been our main actor for all of this time, except for some few events. This week, however, that ends. Now, Jacob will still be present throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, but the story from this point on is not going to revolve around Jacob. This be began last week, and it's continuing this week. A transition is occurring in the book of Genesis, and the story arc of Jacob is closing. The story of Jacob as our main actor. And last week, we saw his son step up and get in the way of what Jacob was trying to do and to solve a very real problem. And this week, we'll see another son step out of his role and attempt to shake up the family dynamic once again. In essence, we're going to see his sons trying to take control before their time. You see, the sons are now coming into their own. And as we saw last week, and we'll see this week, and for weeks to come yet, they themselves are still operating in the ways of the world. And they're not necessarily in line with what Jacob would have them to do. They haven't caught up to him. They're young men now, and they're being raised into a place of princes in their own right. Men with power and authority and nothing to temper them. The way these boys act is like the people around them. They're steeped in the ways of the world and they're operating in their lusts. And this week, we get a mixed bag. There's a whole lot going on this week that we need to cover. And as we'll see, it actually tells a story. We'll see Jacob leading his family and then Jacob attempting to deal with the fallout from Shechem. And then Jacob gets attacked from all sides. The nations, the people surrounding him, they aren't out to get him. They're not the ones who are attacking him. But someone else is. And no matter what Jacob does in the story, he's going to lose. And yet, he's also going to be comforted. And then, oddly enough, and disappointingly enough to our Western sensibilities, comes the genealogy of the descendants of Esau. This is such a mixed bag of stories, and there's a thread through them all that I think we can discern. So let's read this Parsha and see what pops out. Genesis 35 through 36. And Elohim said to Yaakov, Arise and go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to El who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Isav your brother. And Yaakov said to his household and to all who were with him, 
Put away your foreign mighty ones that are among you, and cleanse yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and let me make there an altar to El, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me all the way which I have gone. So they gave Yaakov all the foreign mighty ones which were in their hands, and all the earrings which were in their ears, and Yaakov hid them under the terebinth tree which was near Shechem. And they departed, and the fear of Elohim was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Yaakov. And Yaakov came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there Elohim appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And Devorah, Rivka's nurse, died. And she was buried beneath Bethel, under the terebinth tree. So its name was called Alan Bakut. And Elohim appeared to Yaakov again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And Elohim said to him, Your name is Yaakov. Your name is no longer called Yaakov, but Yisrael is your name. So he called his name Yisrael. And Elohim said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and increase. A nation and a company of nations shall be from you, and kings come from your body. And the land which I gave Abraham and Yitzhak I give to you, and to your seed after you I give this land. And Elohim went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Yaakov set up a standing column in the place where he had spoken with him, a monument of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Yaakov called the name of the place where Elohim spoke with him, Bethel. And they set out from Bethel, and it came to be, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrat, that Rachel began to give birth, and had great difficulty giving birth. And it came to be, as she was having great difficulty giving birth, that the midwife said to her, do not fear, for it is another son for you. And it came to be, as her life was going out, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Yamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bet-Rechem. And Yaakov set a standing column on her burial place, which is the monument of Rachel's burial place to this day. And Yisrael set out and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And it came to be when Yisrael dwelt in the land that Reuven went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Yisrael heard about it. Now the sons of Yaakov were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuven, Yaakov's firstborn, and Shimon and Levi and Yehuda and Yisachar and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Yosef and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's female servant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's female servant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Yaakov, who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Yaakov came to his father Yitzhak at Mamre, or Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Yitzhak had dwelt. And the days of Yitzhak were one hundred and eighty years. So Yitzhak breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, aged and satisfied of days. And his sons Asev and Yaakov buried him. And this is the genealogy of Asev, who is Edom. Asev took wives from the daughter of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Chetite, and Aholevama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zivon, the Chivite and Besmat, Ishmael's daughter, sister Nebaiot. And Ada bore Eliphaz to Isav, and Besmat bore Reuel, and Oholivama bore Yeush, and Yalam, and Korach. These were the sons of Isav who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And Asav took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the beings of his household and his herds and all his beasts and all his possessions which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a land away from the presence of his brother Yaakov. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land of the sojournings could not support them because of their herds. So Esav dwelt in Mount Seir. Esav is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esav, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esav's sons, Eliphaz, son of Adah, 
wife of Esav, and Reuel, son of Besmat, wife of Esav. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Tzepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. And Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esav's son. And she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Ada, Esav's wife. And these were the sons of Reuel, Nachat and Zarach, Shama and Mizah. These were the sons of Besmat, Esav's wife. And these were the sons of Aholivama, Esav's wife, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Tzivon. And she bore to Esav, Yeush and Yalam and Korach. And these were the chiefs of the sons of Esav. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn, son of Esav, were chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Tzepho, and chief Kenaz, chief Korach, chief Gatam, chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom, and they were the sons of Adah. And these were the sons of Reuel, Esav's son, chief Nachat, chief Zerach, chief Shama, chief Miza. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Besmat, Esav's wife. And these were the sons of Aholivama, Esav's wife, Chief Yeush, Chief Yalam, Chief Korach. These were the chiefs descending from Aholivama, Esav's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esav, who was Edom, and these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan and Shoval, and Sivon and Anah, and Dishon and Etzer and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, Lotan's sister was Timnah, and these were the sons of Shoval, Alvan and Manachat, and Eval and Shepho and Onam, and these were the sons of Sivon, both Aya and Anna. This was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness, as he fed the donkeys of his father Sivon. And these were the children of Anna, Dishon and Horevama, the daughter of Anna. And these were the sons of Dishon, Hemdan and Eshban and Yitran and Keran. These were the sons of Etzer, Bilhan and Zavan and Akan. And these were the sons of Dishan, Utz and Aran. And these were the chiefs of the Chorites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shoval, Chief Zivon and Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Etzer and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Chorites according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. And these were the kings who reigned over the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhava. And Bela died, and Yovav, son of Zerach of Botzrah, reigned in his place. And Yovav died, and Husham of the land of Temanites reigned in his place. And Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who struck Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avit. And Hadad died, and Samla of Masrakah reigned in his place. And Samla died, and Shaul of Rechovot by the river reigned in his place. And Shaul died, and Baalchanan, son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And Baalchanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of the city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetavel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mesahav. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esav, according to their clans and their places, by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Yatet, Chief Ahorivama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Eram. These were the chiefs of Adam according to their dwelling places in the land of the possession. Esav was the father of the Edomites. Man, that's a lot of hard to pronounce names. The genealogy of Esau is one of the larger genealogies that we experience in all of scripture uh, until we get to the Chronicles, which is full of a ton of names. But last week, as we were talking about Genesis 34 and the events in Shechem, the Parsha was supposed to go through verse 8 of this chapter that we've read today. Um, We didn't read it then, though. 
as I examined last week and thought about the story as a whole and what we wanted to cover as part of the lesson, I decided to go ahead and save the eight verses from the first of beginning of chapter 35 this week and put them in this week's Parsha rather than including them in last week's. Uh, why did I do that? Well, I think that it helps us to get a toehold in something that's going on this week. And besides, last week we had enough going on for us to examine, and we didn't need to add that to this. Well, this week we will have four separate pieces to examine, and one of those pieces is less than half a verse. So, let's go ahead and dig into it. At the beginning of this week, we read of the escape from Shechem and their arrival at Bethel. And then we'll read the second story, the deaths of two women. And sandwiched between those deaths is God's confirmation of Jacob's earlier name change, as well as a blessing that's not quite like many of the blessings we've read earlier. And third is that curious incident of Reuben sleeping with his father's concubine. What's that all about? And then we get several genealogies. We get the listing of the sons of Israel and the death of Isaac. And then finally, a long, 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 long list of those names from the line of Esau. So these four separate parts, and yet there is a theme that runs through all of them. Because there's a lot more being said in this chapter than is traditionally recognized. When we look at it as just a story, then there's not a whole lot going on. They went there, they did some things, some people died, so what? But if we examine it thematically, I think we're going to pick up on something that's actually really profound. So let's stop looking at this as history, and let's look at them as themes. So story one. This first story, the story of Jacob's exit from Shechem, it's steeped in the context of being spoken by God, go to the place where I met you when you escaped Esau. Now, the symmetry here shouldn't be missed. The text is asking us to go back and to consider that previous story of Jacob's escape Esau. That previous escape was from a brother that wished to kill him, leading to a meeting with God in the place that is called both Luz and Bethel. Uh, Luz meaning simply almond tree, and Bethel meaning house of God. Well, this time there's a new escape coming away. It's still an escape from Esau in a way. And now the escape is not from Esau, and it's not Esau that wishes to kill Jacob. But rather it's the nations that surround him that are afraid of him and his wild kids, because they've just proven that no one is safe from their wrath. And in verse 2, Jacob gives a command to his household. Put away the foreign gods among you. Cleanse yourselves. Change your clothes. To our modern society, we look at this list and we're like, okay, right, so get rid of your idols. You should do that anyway, Ten Commandments. And the others really don't mean anything to us. We cleanse ourselves regularly. We change our clothes daily. But in the ancient world, these things were not as common. And so this command was rather significant. Add to this that throughout Scripture, these three things, they take on a life of their own and they become symbols that are used repeatedly to describe a spiritual change. So when Israel gets to Mount Sinai in Exodus in chapter 19, they are given a very similar charge by Moses in chapter 19 verse 10. And Hashem said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. So they are to sanctify themselves, which is put away their idols. Not just put it away in a drawer, but put them out of the camp. And then they're to wash their clothes. Now as slaves, it was not likely that everyone had a change of clothing. All they had was on their backs. And so then later on in the chapter, we read in verses 14 through 15. 
So Moses went down from the mountain and the people, and he consecrated the people, and he washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So after they washed their clothes, they were to remain pure for three days. Going near a woman, if we read in Leviticus, we'll see that a measure of ritual impurity, as it's usually called, is attached to the act of sex. And so he's saying, don't engage in that. We'll get into that a whole lot more in the book of Leviticus. And so they washed their clothes and they were to remain pure. Now, no one washes their clothes without washing their body, especially in the ancient world. So that was just kind of inferred. So while it's not the exact same phrases, we get the same ideas. Be set apart, cleanse yourself, and then remain pure. And again, we see these ideas reflected in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and the ordination ceremonies for the priests. And these, the whole process of the ordination is a process of sanctification. They're washed with water. They have new garments placed on them. And these ideas, they're so very central to everything. And, and in these pictures, we see then repeated over and over in various ways, but always conforming to the same theme. Put away your idols or sanctify yourself, which is serve Hashem alone. Then be washed in water and made clean. And then put on a new nature. Now, now new clothes or clean clothes is kind of this picture it's taken on in Scripture of taking off the old and putting on the new, in that your body will remain the same, your face remains the same, but you have a, a new essence to you, a new start. It's a, it's a type of new creation that overlaps the old body. And so when we put it in this way, we get a glimpse of the gospel that Peter preached. And so when we get to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter is giving his sermon on Pentecost. And Peter said to them, repent, or Put away your idols, turn away from your, your idol worship, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the cleanse yourself with water. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this case, rather than some sort of outside covering that's being changed with the same substance of your flesh, this time it's, a, it's an inward reality that's being changed with the same substance of your flesh. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, and as many as Hashem our Elohim shall call. And so here in, in Genesis 35, we get a glimpse, and not for the first time, of the gospel contained in the book of Genesis. What's happening here? They're escaping from the world, a world that seeks only their death. And that's where they get this new beginning, as they're heading to this home of promise. Awesome, cool, the gospel in Genesis, right? So what's the next story about? If this story is about repentance, baptism, and the forgiveness of sins, and the being baptized in the Holy Spirit, or receiving the Holy Spirit, what's the second story about? Well, guess what? That's not all there is to the gospel. There's more to the gospel because the gospel isn't just a message of salvation from your past. It's a message of redemption or being brought into a future kingdom that God has. So it continues into this next section. Now, in order to recognize this, once again, this, this section begins and ends with the death of a woman. The first woman that dies is the nurse of Rebecca. This is something that I have had to think about for quite some time. Why is his mother's nurse important? What's this all about? Is she even with them? Has he even met Isaac yet? 
Is he home? Why is Rebecca's nurse around at all? And why does it matter that she dies now? And the fact is, we're not told anything about that. The important thing is that Rebecca's nurse died. But why is that important? Well, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, but I'm going to take a guess at this because, and the guess I'm going to make, it makes sense to me because it's the context of a deeper message of this passage. The significance of the death of Rebecca's nurse is found in the comparison to the death of Rachel at the end of the story. Now it's my thought that Rebecca has already passed. She's already dead. We don't know. We don't know. We're never told. In fact, she's never mentioned as a character again after she sends Jacob away from her home after his deception. If you'll remember back then, uh, Rachel said, let your curse be upon me if you're discovered. Well, he was discovered, and from that point on, she's never a character in the story again. Now, Deborah, in this case, then takes on that symbol of Rebecca through her connection to Rebecca. She becomes the stand-in for Rebecca in the story, representing her in the story without her name, without her actually being present. So the idea that's being represented here is being that both Rebecca, his mother, and Rachel, his favored wife, are dying as bookends of what's nested in the center between them. Now why? Why these two women? What, what do these two women have in common besides both of their names beginning with a Raish? Okay, uh, the letter R. Well, one represents the barren woman that led him to deceive his brother. She tempted him to act in the way of the world. The other represents the barren woman that led him to being deceived. And because of her, he did not recognize the trap that Laban was laying for him. And because of her actions on their escape, Laban then had reason to accuse Jacob of wrongdoing. Now, Rebecca represents the woman that caused him to deny the rights of his brother, tempting him to take for himself what was not freely given by his father, and what didn't actually belong to him. And then Rachel represents the woman that caused him to deny the rights of his wife. Her complaining about her place in life and wanting more and her own desires forced him to place all of his focus on her. Frankly, neither of them were a good influence on Jacob. But he loved them both desperately. And now here in this one story, in this two little verses that are separated from each other, they're both taken from him. And so what is it in the middle? What is that middle section that's so important that having his mother and his favored wife both taken from him in a short period of time, what does it contain? Well, this second center section is something that's absolutely brilliant on a lot of levels, because Elohim himself comes down and confirms Jacob's name changed. What had just happened in Shechem? He'd been shamed in front of the nations. His family now bears all of that shame. And yet God comes down and says, there's nothing you can do that changes this. You're still my chosen. You're still the one on whom my promise lands. Besides, it's not even your fault. It's your kid's fault. You yourself, you're still Israel. That name change, it stands. And the blessing of Abraham is then repeated. But the interesting thing is that this is not the blessing that we usually run into in the course of Scripture. There's two types of blessings that happen in Scripture. 
The one that we usually think of of the blessing of Abraham is the one that's given in Genesis 12. Well, that one in Genesis 12 is then repeated in Genesis 13, 15, 22. It's given to Isaac in in chapter 26 and Jacob in chapter 28. And that blessing is along the lines of you will be as the stars or the sands. You're going to be hugely abundant. And I give the land to you and through you the world will be blessed. But this isn't that same blessing. It is in some ways thematically. It does bear a lot of similarities. The blessing here is a repeat of a distinct and separate blessing that was bestowed on Abraham in Genesis 17. Now, if we look back to Genesis 17, Genesis 17 was where the sign of the circumcision occurred. But there's something else that occurred in Genesis 17. If we look at verses 5 through 6, And no longer is your name called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, because I shall make you a father of many nations. And I shall make you exceedingly fruitful, and make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. In Genesis 17, Avram's name is changed by God, and then this very blessing is spoken over Avram. Be fruitful and multiply, I will make you into a nation, and kings will come from you. It contains everything, the change of name, the blessing of fruitfulness, not just fruitfulness as before, stars of the sky and sands of the sea, but nationhood, and then that ultimate honor, the father of kings. Now, here in the beginning of this, though, is a blessing that stretches far back before Abraham. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, we've read this command before. It was given to man before the fall in Genesis 1, twice. Be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis 8 and 9, it was stated three times to Noah after the flood. New creation, right? Both of those, both of those instances were instances of new creation. And then the next time we see this wording is in Genesis 28, as Isaac is speaking his final blessing over Jacob before sending him out. This is just after the deception has occurred. Esau is looking to kill Jacob. Isaac says, we need to get you out of here. Go find a wife, right? And so this is what was spoken by Isaac as Jacob was leaving the land. In Genesis 28, verse 3 through 4. And El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and increase you and you shall become an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Avram to you, and to your seed with you, so that you inherit the land of your sojournings, which Elohim gave to Avraham. Now notice, both here, as Jacob is coming back into the land, just before he meets his father once again, and just as Jacob was leaving his father, there's a blessing in the name of El Shaddai, and then the extension of that blessing of Avraham being fruitful and nationhood. That previous blessing of Hashem gave to Jacob in Genesis 28, just after this came, that was the usual blessing that we think of when we think of the blessing of Abraham. You will be as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea and the world will be blessed through you. But this blessing is different. It's the blessing that was given to Abraham and it was only given upon that name change. It was given as a symbol of new creation and of the coming of the fullness of time. Your wait is over. You are no longer who you used to be. You are a new creation. This world around you is still fallen. It's miserable. But you are a new creation in the midst of this fallen world. And that new creation is found in your new identity as Israel. And that name brings this idea into crystal focus. 
because this time the name isn't connected with wrestling as it was back when he got it the first time. This time the name Israel is connected to kings because one of the ways that Israel can be translated is Yesar El. He will be a prince of God. And so in this, the gospel goes a little bit deeper. Let's step back from this and look at it thematically. It began with the command, repent, be baptized, and be saved, right? The, that last one could be phrased as become a new creation, that outward clothing over that, that same flesh. Then this new one can be steeped in those things that you love and that love you, but that harm you, that keep you from the fullness that God has for you. Those things will pass away. And there will be mourning and there will be weeping because a very real part of you is going to be lost. But it will be for your own good because without those things in your life, you will become a new creation and you will be blessed with the new identity of nation of Israel. And as a new person is birthed into the world, that old nature will pass away. Now Benjamin, when he was born, his mother called him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. But Jacob, Jacob named him the son of my right hand. And in Benjamin, we kind of get this picture of the elevation of a person as they're being raised up because that sorrow that your old nature gave birth to, when it's taken on a new nature and adopted by the father into the family of Israel, becomes the strength of the right hand. Where once you brought only sorrow to the Father's mind as he watched you sin and do nothing but evil continually, you will become a son that does the work of the Father, that is a son of honor, a son that's to be raised and lifted up. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty profound. Uh, these pictures, the themes, the symbols... It creates for us a depth of understanding of these disparate stories that are going on and it allows us to connect them and they weave for us an idea that's represented all throughout scripture from beginning to end. But, but then comes the final story of this chapter. Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid and his father's concubine. What in the world is going on here? Well, in the ancient Near East, sex wasn't simply about personal gratification or about growing closer to another person as it's usually treated today. In the ancient Near East, sex was an exercise in power, the power over life through the creation of life and the expanding of the power of the father by having children that can then be joined to a powerful or honorable families. It was also steeped very much in an honor-shame dynamic because if you could sleep with the wife of your opponent, you would bring shame upon your opponent. You gained power over him. In wars, if the men raped the women of the cities that they conquered, then they brought shame upon not just the women, but upon the cities and upon their husbands, even if their husbands were dead. And that shame served to keep them in servitude after they'd been captured. Now, even today, sex is used as a tool to bring honor and shame in many cultures. A recent article I read was an interview with a Muslim man who claimed that raping women from the enemy cultures was an act of worship to Allah because it brought shame upon the women of those other cultures and it brought honor to their God 
and to their way of life by demonstrating his power over them. And that is the final aspect of sex in the ancient Near East, is it was usually an act of worship. Temple prostitution, as we talked about last week, very common in the ancient Near East. Sex itself, you go into a temple prostitute, it was as if you were being joined to the god or goddess in question. Now this story here, this story is not a story of worship. This is wholly and solely a story of using sex to gain power and to bring shame. So when Reuben sleeps with Bilhah after the death of Rachel, is he only committing a sinful faux pas? Not hardly. He is attempting a coup. He's trying to take over the family by sleeping with his father's concubine. In the ancient Near East is a very common practice for a man when his father died. The man would go to his father's concubines and take them to himself as a symbol of taking over his father's authority, position, and honor. Now his father's wives, they were off limits. And if his own mother was a concubine, then his own mother was off limits. The other concubines of his father, they became his and passed on to him when he was raised to the head of the household, the head of the family. So in 2 Samuel 16, we see the same thing happen. In 2 Samuel 16, Absalom has begun a civil war, has begun a coup over his father David. And as Absalom enters Jerusalem, David escapes from his son's armies. And Absalom's first act is one that he needs to use in order to consolidate his power over Israel. So what does he do? What is his first act as this new king, as he's trying to seize power and gain it to himself? He puts a pavilion on the roof of the palace and then has sex with all of his father's concubines who were left behind. Absalom, he had to claim his father's power and his honor and bring shame to his father in the sight of all of the people in order to replace him. Simply kicking him out of the city wouldn't do. But Absalom had a problem. His father wasn't dead. And that's what we see going on here. Reuben wasn't just a guy who had very little self-control or who was just looking for a good time and jumped in the wrong bed. Or perhaps even got drunk and oops. You see, Rachel had just died, which means that Jacob was weak. And Bilhah, Bilhah had no mistress now. She was going to lose her standing as a handmaid to the wife of Jacob. She'd still be a concubine, but she could never again grace his bed because her mistress was dead. And Jacob had many years ahead of him. And for her mistress to be gone, she had a lifetime of languishing with no possibility of gaining any new station or honor. All she could do from here was go down. And so Leah's oldest son, Reuben, recognized Jacob's weakness in this moment. He also recognized Bilhah's plight. And I believe that Bilhah recognized her own plight and Jacob's weakness. And so I think they were working together to supplant Jacob from his place as the head of the family. Again, not a story of rape. This is a story of using sex for power. Now, we look at the story as a confusing aside about some sort of lack of self-control by Reuben, when in reality, the story is about Reuben seeking to gain power that wasn't his. It was going to be his. He simply had to wait, but he grasped at it too soon. Now, later we'll read that 
in this attempt to grasp power too early, this is what caused Reuben to lose the right as leader of the family upon his father's death. It costs him his right as firstborn, and instead it brings a curse down on his head. Not just because he couldn't keep his pants on, but because he sought to seize the leadership of the family and to take power before it was his time. To take it early, even though it was his, if he just waited. And that was Absalom's fault as well. And it came with the same consequences, being cut off. Now, this piece of information is going to be important in a moment, because the story continues. And the next thing we read, even before the verse is over, is a recounting of the sons of Jacob according to their mothers. And then finally, before the end of the chapter, Jacob arrives at his father's house in Mamre, or here we get the name Hebron. The same city that's so much of Judah's history occurs in. I mean, this city is very storied, not just did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live there. This is the city that Caleb chooses as his inheritance when upon the conquest. This is the city that David ruled in for seven years over just Judah before his capital was moved to Jerusalem and he increased his kingdom to all of Israel. And it's in this city that Isaac finally dies and his sons, Jacob and Esau, bury him. Now, who were these people to Jacob? They were his father and his brother, right? But more important than that, they were the head of the family and the brother who should have been the head of the family. Upon his passing, Jacob now becomes the head of the household. Just after Reuben attempts his coup to seize power over Jacob, Jacob himself, his own coup over his brother Esau, reaches its climax, and he successfully takes the place as the head of the family of Abraham. Now, this passage is a, is a mixed bag of emotions, because Reuben is attempting to do what Jacob himself did over his brother. He's attempting to ascend to power over the family of Abraham through an act of aggression and failing. But then Jacob immediately ascends to that same position in the family of Abraham, and his own ascension is due to the fact that his coup was successful. And then a conflict ignites within us at this thought. Why does Jacob succeed where his son Reuben doesn't? I mean, Jacob was going to lead. We were told that all the way back when Rachel was still pregnant with him. So we tend to look at it as he has nothing to feel sorry about. And yet, for the last eight chapters or so, they've made a point to reveal that Jacob's own change in character that took place after his coup, before he took the lead of the family. So what if he took his brother's place, right? It was God-ordained. It was God-predicted that Jacob would be the master, and the means of that occurring is never revealed by God. And so Rebecca and Jacob, they take it upon themselves to make it happen. Jacob seized power away from the one whose right it was. Well, how do we know? Because the entire next chapter is a memorial to the honor and the lineage of Esau. I mean, we saw the same thing in Scripture just after Abraham's death. We read of the names of the sons of Ishmael, the rightful inheritor of Abraham's line. He's honored with a text, with a testament to his own honor after the fact of his father's death. Esau's greatness, blessed by God, despite being turned down for the honor of ruling the family. 
Esau still is honored. He still becomes a king in his own right, just in a different land. Now, Scripture in these last two passages, it's reminding us of that stolen blessing and of giving honor to the to the one from whom it was taken. It's revealed that God does still respect Esau. It's just that Esau is not the one to carry the blessing. Just as Scripture reveals that God still respected Ishmael, just as he wasn't the one to carry the promise. And it reveals to us that God still loves the world. He truly does. He desires to see all honored and all lifted up. But the lesson here is that it must be done under his authority and in his timing. I mean, just imagine if Reuben had been successful and then immediately Isaac died and he took over as the head of the household. How would history have been different then? Well, I think it's uh, here that we find this congruence of ideas all mashed together because we began with this gospel. Flee the world, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. The things of your flesh will die, but you'll be granted a new identity of Israel. Love the people of the world as God loves them, even those outside of the covenant and of the promise. Give them honor and dignity because they are human and they deserve it. And then... Don't rise above the place where God has you. Don't seek to exercise power and authority before it's time for you to do so, before that power and authority has been granted to you. You may have some sort of calling on your life from God. Don't seize hold of it early. Because as we see all through scripture, God will call a person early and then wait decades before delivering that person to the calling that he's given them. Now, I return to this story a lot because there's so much to learn from it, but it's the story of David before he's crowned king. We see that he was anointed as a king at a young age. He knows from that point on that he will be king. He will be the one to supplant Saul. And yet, he then spends his time in the service of the king. And then through circumstance, he becomes an enemy of the king. And several times as an enemy of the king while on the run and living in caves, depending on God for his very food, the goal, the role, the call that God has upon his life is placed within his reach. All he has to do is reach out and grasp the power. But he recognizes the power is where God has it right now. He could have taken hold of the reality that he knows he is owed But he refrains from making the mistake of Jacob. He refrains from making the mistake of Avraham with Hagar. And he refrains from being Reuben in the bed of Bilhah. The opportunity comes to kill Saul, to gain the power that is his by right that has been promised to him. To even escape persecution and hardship that he's currently under. To achieve a life of comfort and ease. It's at his fingertips. He simply has to reach out and grasp for it. And he refrains because he knows it's not his to take. He knows that God has given a promise to him to make him king. And so he knows that this thing will happen when the timing is right. And then later, when his son Absalom rebels and seizes power, does David fight to keep his power? No, David refuses to fight. He runs before him. 
He's not concerned with defending it or regaining his power. His sole concern is in the life and the well-being of his son and of his people. The power, he's not going to seize hold of it. He will not take it from another. David knows that if God intends for him to have that power, that he will have it. And if not, then he won't. And this too is as much a part of the gospel as any other. Because what's being described here in these stories is humility. It's understanding that you don't know everything in the future and that you probably can't figure out how God's going to accomplish what he's going to do. We have to be humble and accept where God has us at all times, regardless of where that is and what that means. And if you could see where I'm sitting right now, you'd understand how much of a reality that is even for me. But God, if he seeks to elevate you, he will elevate you. And if he seeks to cast you down, he will cast you down. And that is on him. It's our responsibility to allow him to place the power where he will place it and with whoever he places it with and for whatever reason he chooses. Once we come into contact and into relationship with the God of creation and realize just how broken we are as a people, to then react in pride before God, to make demands of him, to attempt to seize his power on his own without it being granted to you, that will lead to a curse. Because you cannot run a coup with God. And perhaps like Reuben here, you'll lose access to the power that God has for you what was rightfully yours. We see a similar thing happen to Simon the mage in Acts. He saw the power of the apostles, and he thought that because he identified as one of them, that he too deserved the power that they had. He went so far in his attempt to seize the power that the apostles had, that he offered to purchase it from them. And in so doing, he then loses all chance of ever receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. He was rebuked. He was cursed. He was cut off. Perhaps, like Absalom, it will destroy you if you try to seize power too early. Because that's not our job to seize the power that God has for us, to seize the role that God has for us, or to elevate ourselves to the place that he has for us. Instead, it is our duty to wait patiently on God as he acts in our lives. To not see every instant as God is delivering it now for me but to rightly discern the situation and say, this isn't right to take it right now. We can't be so power hungry that we seize the power over our own lives or attempt to take control. We must be patient. We must wait. The Bible is so full of advice calling us to wait on God to move. Here's just a small sampling. Hosea 12.6, therefore return to your God, guard loving kindness and justice, and wait on your God continually. Psalm 37.7, rest in Hashem and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man doing wicked devices. Isaiah 30.18, and therefore Hashem shall wait to show you favor, and therefore he shall be exalted to have compassion on you, for Hashem is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. James 5, 7-8 So, brothers, be patient until the coming of the Master. 
See, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You too, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the master has drawn near. Romans 8.23 And not only so, but even we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. In Acts 1.4, And meeting with them, he commanded them not to relieve Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. This theme runs from Scripture from one end to the other. Wait patiently on God. He will not forsake you. He will deliver you. Do not attempt to seize the promise or power on your own. Even if he's promised it to you, do not step out on your own. The moment you step out on your own, the moment you fail. If you truly believe that God is in control, then simply remain obedient to him, and he'll bless you when the time is right. You'll be elevated in due time. Don't rush it. Jacob rushed it, and he spent 20 years in Laban's house learning what it means to be an inheritor in the family of Abraham. Reuben rushed to seize power, and in doing so, he lost all hope of the power that would have been his. Absalom rushed to seek the power, and he ended up being cut off from the land of the living. And the examples go on and on and on. The gospel itself, it's a powerful message. But it's not just a message of what you're being saved from. It's a message of what you're being saved toward. It's a message that can and has changed the world, and it will continue to be powerful and effective. But we must know the entirety of the message. We can't just stop at get out of jail free. It's more than that. It's bigger than that. The message is a kingdom message. It's a message of nationhood, a message of power and authority, and a message of trial and tribulation. It's not an easy message to hear. And in this two chapters, we've seen that message. We've seen it repeated and revealed to us from the themes that are represented in the text. Repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Become a new creation. When that happens, the things of your flesh that are holding you back, those things that you love so much, will die. But you, you will be granted a new identity as part of the nation of Israel. And then love the people of the world as God loves them. Even those outside of the promise, give honor, give dignity to all who are out there whether they're people you have wronged or people who are wronging you. And finally, do not attempt to seize what God has for you too early. Don't do it under your own power. Wait on God. Wait for his salvation. Wait for his deliverance, and he will deliver you. And when it happens, it won't be because you did anything. It won't be so that you can gain honor. It will be so that he can gain honor. Because that's one of the greatest things about this process of seeking life, this process of coming into relationship with God. And so we see right here in Genesis, we see the gospel laid out for us. We see the process of growth laid out for us. We see how it is that a Christian is revealed 
thousands of years later through Yeshua, how we're supposed to live and what it is that we can look forward to. And then we see this expanded and molded and morphed and spoken on so many different times throughout Scripture. We've all seen this before, I'm sure. We've all been told about this. But have you ever seen it in Genesis? It's there. You just got to look. Because life is contained in patterns. And the patterns of the gospel... They exist from one end of Scripture to the other. Always there, always just beneath the surface. And so as we study Scripture, as we go through life, we have to look. We have to use the things of life to help us to interpret Scripture because they will reveal to us what it means to be a servant of the God of life. And so in closing, uh, as you derashchai, as you seek life in all that's around you, Remember, the gospel is as much what you're being saved from as it is what you're being saved towards. And right now, as Paul says in Romans 8.23, we wait and we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for that the fulfillment of that promise and recognizing what has already come. We live in the tension, that place between that area of growth. And in due time, as the farmer, when the latter rains come, we will bear fruit and the kingdom of God will be ushered into this earth. So continue to seek life, everyone. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.